Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. There is a point in middle age where one starts grabbing at totems the way a drowning woman slaps blindly at the surface of an ocean, searching for a life preserver. The old cliché is a man buying a boat or a sporty-looking car in search of some lost virility, but I've known more than a few women who have taken up hobbies or arts in much the same way at that age. I'm not a man, not much of a woman, but I am very much middle-aged. For me, it was a typewriter. WSF Productions presents the fifth season of the West Side Fairy Tales, Scars in Time. Written, scored, produced, and performed by Tyler Bell. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. SFX and Foley created by WSF Productions. Original audio recorded on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Episode 1. The Visions. I'm using it now, have been using it for some time. The sound of the thing is almost mad if you've never heard one. Even though I'm sort of old now, I suppose, even in my distant youth, these things were a little more than antiques. I learned to type on a neon pink ball of a Macintosh. Even those keyboards, made of heavy, clattering plastic, could never come close to the scissoring maelstrom of the typewriter I'd found. Every press of a key on this thing is an act of creation. Swinging forward an oily little knife arm that smacks into the paper and the ink ribbon above, hard enough to dent the sheet. I am, like most writers, not given to a steady flow of words, but rather to torrents and deluges followed by long and echoing silences. I might compare the effect to an hours-long spring thunderstorm that builds and breaks and vanishes without warning or rhythm. This thing beneath my fingers is insistent, mechanical. The noise of typing is not gentle rooftop rain patter, 
but the sudden hammering on a door by some beast of my own creation. It catches me so badly off guard that almost every time I start typing again, I startle myself with the strength of the noise in my tiny fifth-floor garret. I will look around then, taking in the untouched darkness in the corners, behind the typewriter, beneath the desk, the places where the gently pulsing light of my gas lantern doesn't reach. This is not some effect of an aging and self-indulgent writer. The typewriter surely is, or was, at least. But the lantern itself is a necessity. There is no light in my attic, so to say, and no hope of it without some extensive remodeling. The electrical system in the house doesn't reach past the third floor, and even though right now I'm writing at what should be around four in the afternoon, there is no sunlight to type by. That is, because somebody... Hopefully a former owner, but possibly not, covered all four of the large picture windows with thick black paint. It's that paint I look at now and then, letting the oily machine heart of the typewriter die for a moment to run my hand over the heavy streaks. The coverage of the paint is absolute. I have been in similar rooms with painted windows, and there is always at least a few errant pinholes that allow the light to bleed through and the sun is always insistent enough to find them. But not here. The coating over the glass is so thick it feels almost like a skin, tough and rubbery. Only the steady, radiant warmth of the sunlight dying against the black bleeds through to my fingers. Even that bit of transferred energy seems frail, but at least it keeps the small room from becoming a midday oven. It keeps it comfortable enough up here year-round that I never really have to leave. And, of course, I don't really want to. Because what lays beneath my lonely parlor in the sky, spread out through the great house below me, is too much to bear at times. Down where the sun filters gently through the windows and fills the hollows of a haunted life. Down there where memory is a constant companion. Down where my wife once lived and now only she remains my ghost to haunt and prick and push and remind me. Down there are the three friends all women find later in life. Regret, memory, and guilt. People have a way of searching out totems in their middle life, but the searching for and finding of these totems is always precipitated by some sign. A beautiful young woman stretching her arms at a bus stop. A woman your age laughing along with a couple of morning television hosts. A baby in a bassinet chewing the corner of one of those hard little cardboard books infants always seem to have. Small things that mean nothing to anybody but the intended, that pass like a breeze, save for the single person whom they strike like a hammer. It was three such visions that afflicted me the day of my 47th birthday. I was in my home office when I heard the footsteps. I felt them, really, the way you can feel any change in a home you've lived in for a long time. They came from the long, carpeted hallway that ran from the foyer and sitting room, passing by the space between the open-plan kitchen with its large central island and the door to my office. I pulled my earbuds away and looked up, and there she stood, the first of my three visions. It was a girl in her late teens, just about graduation age. 
brushing her teeth while her thumb flicked over the smartphone in her right hand. It wasn't the strangeness of this apparition that so badly froze me to my seat, but the rank familiarity of it, as though nothing were wrong at all. I sat still in my seat, watching this young woman brushing her teeth and waited for something, anything, to break the silence. Eventually, she felt my eyes on her, and I suppose the directness of my gaze must have startled her, because she jumped slightly and coughed. Then she tossed me a quick and guilty smile, sticking the toothbrush between her teeth and cheek. Sorry, Mom, she said, before turning and jogging off down the hall toward the bathroom. I opened my mouth, said nothing, and then looked at my computer screen. The blank sheet of digital paper had nothing but a title and a few lines of dead text I hadn't yet buried with the delete key. Only the title would survive the cleansing, as it had all the times before. Umbrellas over the abyss, the story was called, though I had no idea where it was going or where, honestly, it would even start. The blank sheet grounded me, and for the first time in a long time, I truly felt the full context of that word, grounded, as though I'd been hovering off balance just above the ground and gravity had returned to me firmly, if gently to where I belonged. The feeling spread up to my brain, feeling like a burst of electric light showering down the inside of my skull until I realized I'd been staring at my computer screen so long without blinking that my eyes were clouding from dryness. I muttered something like, fuck me, under my breath and stood clumsily enough to bang my thighs hard on the underside of my desk. I hissed and bent over my laptop rubbing them for a moment before cursing in earnest and heading out into the hall. I walked to the bathroom, only half hunting for this teenaged apparition as I tried to clear a sudden buffet of cobwebs from my head. The air in the hallway had a twisted feeling, as though each slight breeze were a strand of rope strung wall to wall in a sort of net. Passing through them broke the things and then I was in the closest of our home's three bathrooms, running my fingers along the sink basin to check for wetness. Nothing. I sighed and shook my head and washed my face, still feeling the electric tingle along the interior of my skull. I pushed my fingers into the short hair on the back of my head, tracing the patchwork of scar tissue that covered most of my scalp from about the midpoint of my head to just behind my right ear. The hair along those scars, the scars themselves were a memento of a terrible accident when I was 17, grew white and just as thick as the rest of my hair. It made a sort of fishing net pattern on the side and some of the back of my head. The scars there were so tight they stretched the skin of my face slightly, making me look much younger than I am. This is balanced out by the fact that they also make me look perpetually irritated, which makes meeting new people awkward. But, being the sort of person who lives more in the space behind their eyes instead of in the world, it doesn't much bother me. I sighed giving the white fishnet on the side of my head one last look before methodically checking the rest of the bathrooms in our house. I knew nothing was or would be there. This was an exercise I had been going through since the accident nearly 30 years ago. Mild brain damage and some psychiatric difficulties from the events surrounding the accident had left me with a broken, sparking battery of a mind. A brain that liked to occasionally fuck off to La La Land with me strapped helplessly in the passenger seat. 
Visions like this teenaged, teeth-brushing ghost weren't new to me. And even though she had been so solidly there, I knew she wasn't. I still checked the bathrooms as a matter of course, feeling the sparkling electric roll in the base of my skull and neck that usually accompanied my stronger delusions. Once I'd finished my tour of the house, I loudly proclaimed my morning writing session a failure and packed up to go to work, forcing myself not to glance back down the long hallway past my office, telling myself that, if I looked back, nothing would be there. I took care of getting on the bus to my part-time job as an adjunct professor at CU Boulder, where I taught a handful of creative writing and English classes. Jobs like this are a cursed perk for people in my profession who had accomplished great things with letters at a young age and then little else since. I had written a book called Skull Crickets about my stay in the TAF, or Trans-Allegheny Psychiatric Hospital, that had made me very, very famous for a very, very short time. The sort of famous where you talk to Oprah two times and then nobody ever calls you again. Skull Crickets had been my first and last real book, though not my last attempt at one. My subsequent efforts at writing whole books, both fiction and non-fiction, had been dull, empty exercises. Chapters of slush, some of which my agent managed to boil down into bills paying short stories and essays. Nothing that would have ever been published if it didn't come with From the Author of Skull Crickets, stamped somewhere on it. My mind kept returning to that damned book in class. I'd slumped down in my chair, managing to prop my chin up in a way that hid how tired I was, when I felt a familiar rising current. Tangles of air constricted around me, almost pulling me out of the chair. They seemed to beat in dull resonance with the voice of the student I had just instructed to read aloud. She read in the clipped, rambling way people with no sense for grammar usually read, almost as though it was her first time seeing the words on the page even though she'd written them. The story was the same banal shit that always reared its head in sophomore composition, a half-assed screed against her father for not letting her pursue her own career goals. I listened to her power her way through clumsy points and bad metaphors until I couldn't take it anymore. I raised my hand and tried to tell her she could stop. I coughed instead, a hard, hitching cough nastier than anything I'd ever felt in my life. My body protested, spasmed, and then I coughed again, doubling over my desk as I did so. The girl continued reading as I buried my forehead against the faux wood desktop and tried to clear my lungs. I managed to get a raspy breath in and leaned back so I could see the class. I was honestly considering flagging one of them over for help and a touch concerned that they were going on without checking on me. The sun shifted outside and the classroom became suddenly too bright on the back wall, making the students a host of black, formless blobs spreading out from this central speaker. I tried to wave a hand at her to get her to stop for a moment, but she kept reading. Due to my coughing, I couldn't make out what she was saying, but it kept on with that endless, pitchless, rhythmless rambling words and phrases and rasping, choking, breathless pauses. I waved a hand at the class and rushed into the hall, feeling the threads growing all the tighter around me. My brain was lying to me again, I knew, but the magnitude of this growing delusion was more extreme than anything I'd ever experienced. I managed to clear my lungs over a wastebasket, a thankfully empty hallway, 
but the effort made puddles of blackness grow in my vision. The cores of air seemed to be all but strangling me. I wandered, trying to get away from those ropes and feeling the scars on the back of my head begin to itch and then burn. I rubbed at them, trying to keep my eyes down on the ground as though I was deep in my thoughts, on purpose, and not actively being drowned by them. Then I was in a great white room, my heart beating wildly as I realized I was waking up in the hospital after the accident. I could feel him again, the warm tips of his fingers between the swirls of cold autumn air, the numbing, cloying warmth spreading up my arm and into my head like a hot wash of heroin until my eyes were softening and losing focus, then the lurching feeling of falling back and the kick and pull of the fish hooks in my guts, cutting deep inside me until my heart was full of something black and poisonous and freeing, the smell of burning engine oil, smoke, and dead wood being eaten by flame. I sucked in a panicked breath that nearly knocked me off balance. Sweat soaked every inch of my shirt and it clung to my skin. I felt doom, dread, the sensation of drowning you get before breaking the surface of the pool after a deep dive, but now the air remained just out of reach. I swam in my own broken consciousness for a moment before my eyes clarified, and I realized the white room I was standing in wasn't the hospital. The mostly blank walls were one of the university's art displays between installations. Only one painting remained, coming into focus out of the blinding white the way blood seeps to the surface of a bad scrape. Only suddenly was it there, and when it came it was full and in focus. People, dead and alive and dying, lay spread across a raft inside the massive rectangle of canvas. No, more than this, the bodies were spilled pooled, dripped, laced across the bottom of this raft, a rough square of wood adrift on a vicious sea. People of both light and dark skin filled the unfortunate craft, but those who were dead were white with death, and even the living seemed at points pale from death's approach. They had allowed themselves to be bled of life by their own despair and were draped across the craft like so much sailcloth. But on the right side of the painting, a man, several men in fact, but one above the others, stood tall, body taut with life, and held aloft a red flag. It was a sign to a hailing vessel, a possible rescue, indicated by a great light in the upper right of the frame, I saw. There were other such red cloths interspersed amongst the dead and the dying, laying as useless and limp as the defeated. But the man on the right, bolstered by the strength of his fellow passengers, held in his hand the true red blood of life which had so fled the others. I shivered and felt the electric heat of the vision begin to fade. The tendrils of air dispersed as well, their passing leaving me off balance and bewildered, eyes wandering the floor of the partially finished exhibit. Aside from the sparse display lights, the only illumination was the red exit sign at the far end of the hall. I imagined a small brass placard placed at my feet reading, Failure, Woman in Flesh and Cloth by Unknown Artist. Every letter was nothing more than a dozen or more whitish cuts into the metal with some poor tool, a discarded screw perhaps. That image faded as well, leaving an electric afterburn, and then I was alone in my thoughts again, walking for the door on unsteady feet. 
I mumbled class cancellations into my phone on the bus to the hospital, watching the green of the lower foothills pass into the dullish brown of the flat irons in the distance. I never fell in love with the Rockies and the rest of Colorado's mountains. There was something too jagged and fresh about them compared to my memories of sprawling Appalachia. The Rockies were better overall mountains, maybe. Picture perfect and great for all those mountainside-type attractions, the snowboarding and climbing and the like. But in my heart, they were too sparse and too spread out, too treeless and stark. Unlike Appalachia, there seemed to be nowhere to hide in Colorado. No forgotten haulers or dead neighborhoods or lost old mansions hiding up just behind the next tree line. What you saw was what you got, and sure, it was gorgeous. But something was missing. Something I didn't realize until then that I was desperately missing. A lingering feeling of loss that stayed with me into the hospital. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, my name is Tyler Bell and I am the host of the West Side Fairy Tales. For better or worse, this operation is basically a one-man show. I do all the writing, reading, editing, music, and the various other production aspects. Yui Breedlove does all the wonderful episode art you see online. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider compensating us for the experience. Anything, even just a dollar. Let's us know that you believe the West Side Fairy Tales is content you appreciate. You can donate to our efforts directly through the PayPal link on our website, westsidefairytales.com, or by pledging to support us on Patreon. For just a dollar there, you'll get access to these episodes without ads like this, and for $5 or more, 
You get access to members-only content, including fully produced ebooks of the episodes and behind-the-story lore episodes. And, at $10 or more, we'll start sending you special merch packs and a whole lot of other stuff. The West Side Fairy Tales is a one-of-a-kind production, and we can't thank you enough for just taking the chance to give us a listen. But odd, off-the-wall, incredibly unique productions like this are self-funded, and, without the generous support of listeners like you, we wouldn't be able to stay on the air. So, please consider keeping great horror independent and supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. Dr. Starling, Dr. Starling, pick up on line four. Code orange, Dr. Starling, pick up on line four. I checked in at the front desk and the nurse, a familiar woman named Elena, said she'd ring for my wife, Darcy. We'd been married for something like 15 years, together for much longer, and she'd been a doctor for most of that time. I could have called, but my episodes make phones more difficult to use than you might think. I have a smartphone for emergencies, but I rarely use it otherwise. Elena pointed me down a hall to the rear elevator and told me Darcy was finishing up with a patient. I wondered if the other staff thought I was a patient with the way I awkwardly walked in through the front door to stand, wringing my hands in line until it was my turn. With my odd face and the scars and the weird hair, I wouldn't be surprised. I thanked Elena and made my way into the depths of the hospital. It was one of the old sort, nice enough in the front parts where the new families and emergency care cases might wait. All that was glass and chrome, Clean white plastic surfaces tailored up with wood so everything looked like an elaborate day spa. But the heart of the place was like any other hospital. In the back, where the dying was done, all was cinder block and stone and steel. Broad hallways led to low, cavernous spaces full of ancient, empty plastic chairs. The occasional shadow of a person slumped and waiting beneath the talking heads chattering away on the television. I followed signs and turns in the order Elena had recommended, hunting for the triplicate elevators that would lead me upstairs. Darcy hadn't always worked here, and I had a bad memory for building layouts. She was a general practitioner, and had taken this job to do some sort of doctor training that would allow her to perform this or that minor surgery, something that needed a certification she would have to pay for out of pocket without taking the job here. She could leave whenever she wanted now, but we had a comfortable life, so we hadn't, choosing instead to settle down in Boulder of all places. Excuse me, said a tall man in a suit and white doctor's coat. He brushed past me into the elevator, having to duck slightly to clear the doorway. I followed in behind him, waiting until he'd hit his own button, floor five, before trying to reach for my own floor, number seven. But at the last second, a nurse in scrubs pushed into the elevator, covering his green paper surgical mask with his fist and coughing. It sounded nasty, whatever it was he had. He probably shouldn't be at work. I reached past him to hit my number, but another pushed in, and then another, all of them nurses in green or blue scrubs. They even managed to cover the buttons on the side panel, 
but most of them were hitting different floors, so I let myself get washed to the back of the elevator and hoped for the best. I could feel the tethers tightening again, weighing down on my shoulders now hard enough they passed cleanly into my flesh. They bonded to the bones surrounding my neck, feeling like wet snakes trying to push their sharpened nails into my joints. I took a deep breath and tried to clear my head, suddenly terrified about freaking out in a packed hospital elevator. In my mind, little silver syringes flicked up in every hand like switchblades, all of them ready to puddle my brain with a Thorazine cocktail, to leave me bloodless on a raft in a dark ocean of pain. My dear, are you feeling okay? The tall doctor asked. I glanced up at him, seeing nothing of his face save for the shadows left by the bank lighting in the roof of the elevator. I could make out glasses and a mustache, tall, hollow cheekbones. Yellow plaque thickened the gaps in his smile. I'm fine, I whispered, leaning against the metal wall. The elevator lurched upward, itching in its first step enough to cause most of the nurses to try and catch their balance onto each other and the walls. The tall doctor swung gently sideways, but remained hanging over me. You're shaking, young lady, he said, and sweating badly. His fingers pressed into the hollow of my throat, digging cold and insistent toward my carotid artery. I would have flinched away if his other hand hadn't risen smooth as silk to the left side of my neck to hold me in place. I froze into position, my breath caught in my throat. He released me. My lord, your heartbeat is quite elevated. Yes, he said. His voice was slow and steady, like an old clock. I looked up and saw only the mustache and the glasses. Grime smeared the lenses so badly I couldn't see his eyes. You, do you have a pen light? One of the nurses turned toward the tall doctor. All I could see of the man were snatches of pale skin around red, wet eyes. Black irises. The rest of him was green cloth and a paper hair cap. The man swung with the motion of the elevator and lurched toward me like a drunk. He pulled a pen light from his pants and flicked it on, shining it into my eyes. I opened my mouth to protest and he lost his balance at just that moment, falling into me until both of us were pinned against the wall. His body was hot, burning hot, and wet, and reeked of the sweet smell of deathly illness. I pushed him back just as he began coughing, heavy, wet hacking that doubled him over into the nurses behind him. I cleared my throat remembering the sudden burst of coughing that had forced me out of my classroom earlier. The other nurses stumbled against the doors, and the sudden change in weight in the elevator caused the floor to hitch upward hard enough to bend my knees. Then all of us were stumbling and falling side to side inside the elevator car, moving in time with the shivering waves of the steel cables carrying us higher and higher up the shaft. Whoa! <laughs> the tall doctor said, grabbing my chin and cheeks. He flashed his pen light from eye to eye. <laughs> Having quite an episode, aren't we, young lady? He asked. The light flashed faster and faster, holding on one eye and then another. I couldn't breathe. The crowd of nurses was now leaning on one side of the elevator so hard the thing was listing. The crowd of them pressed against me and the tall doctor. I heard something scraping, grinding then breaking loose in the wall outside the elevator. A hot, oily smell, like a roller coaster on a summer day. 
fought its way into the sickness stench already dominating the elevator car. Then the thing ground to a halt. The doctor turned the light off and stuck it inside his coat, not seeming to have any trouble balancing despite the heavily canted elevator floor. You're having a panic attack, he said, smiling. His teeth were large and flat. Quite a terrible one at that. I leaned against the cold wall of the elevator, staring up at the refracted white light in his dirty lenses, the only bit of detail I could piece out of his silhouette now. You know what they say, though. There's no better place to get sick than at a hospital. I'm not sick, I said. My voice was weak. Threads of air had gathered all around me, twisting into each other so that I was being wound into a greater strand, an errant piece of something jammed between the fibers of creation. I wanted to vomit. Oh? He cocked his head to the side, and I heard a terrible crack in his neck. It was a loud, wet sound that turned my stomach into knots. The elevator door opened and the crowd of nurses fumbled out into the hallway, all of them coughing or clearing their throats. I think you might need to be put under observation and tell me, who are you here to see? I'll have you escorted. We wouldn't want you to fall and hurt yourself. I'm here for... I had to take a long breath clenching my eyes shut before answering. The hand on my shoulder felt real. If nothing else I'd just experienced was, he might be. I thought of Darcy, mouth turned up and worried in that way that I hated. A doctor's practiced sympathy. I'm meeting my wife. She's a general practitioner here. Your wife? <laughs> The doctor said. I didn't like the way he laughed, a series of hitches in his chest that resolved into a long ha ha ha. Isn't that something? Well, I'll go to the nurse's station and have somebody fetch a wheelchair for you. He grabbed one of the stumbling nurses and turned the man back to me. This person had very dark skin and dark eyes, the irises rimmed with red. Something like ink was staining his surgical mask. Look after her, will you? The tall doctor said, turning to leave. He cracked his shoulder blades and cocked his head slightly, the chin popping upward with a nasty crack before he spoke. And you, stay here. I watched him disappear into a well-lit corridor where a sign with an arrow reading Nurse's Station was affixed to a wall. I would have run, to hell if I made a fool of myself, if I didn't feel like I was about to pass out right there. He had leaned me against the wall like an old cane and there I stood, watching the dark-skinned nurse watching me. But the man wasn't really watching me, I saw. Rather, he was looking at some distant point behind and through me. He swayed on his feet and turned, landing with his shoulder against the door beside him. It smashed open loud enough to make me scream. Then he was stumbling back into the hallway, bracing himself against the doorframe with his back to me. The muscles along his spine were trembling, wriggling, really, beneath the thin fabric of his scrubs. His every breath was labored and wet, crackling, bubbly. 
He seemed to regain something of himself and began furiously pulling at the twists of cord holding his mask to his face. I found myself backing away from him slowly, the electric waterfall inside my head pooling in the hollows above my spine. A torrent of black horror fell from his face onto the ground, splattering over his shoes and the tile. The smell was terrible. I saw him bend over to grab something, an oddly horseshoe-shaped thing covered in the black bile he had spit up. I could feel the cords tightening again, dragging me backward into the hall and, for once, I let them move me. He brought this thing up to his face, and the flickering hall lights played off the few exposed surfaces, showing a human jawbone with a scant smattering of teeth remaining. The man turned toward me. I stumbled away into a corridor I hoped would lead me to a stairwell, to a place where the cords would finally snap or separate and let me be. I tried to think of the white page and the flicking black line on my computer screen, hoping it would drag me back up out of this. Mostly, I thought of a boy kissing me when I was 17, filling my mouth with electric honey that hissed and burned and crackled like a live wire as it clawed its way into my skull and my brain. I came to a place where the walls said X-ray and nuclear medicine and had to set my hands on the support rails lining the walls so I wouldn't fall. I took a deep breath, praying for a return to clarity. I told myself that none of what had just happened, or at least most of it, wasn't real. That they, the mysterious and all-powerful they, would lock me up in some closet in the back of the hospital if I made a scene. The threads felt thinner here as well, and I thought that perhaps the vision had ended. Then I heard her talking. Alone plastic hospital bed sat in the hall beside one of the doors in the x-ray ward beside me. An old woman, terribly old, lay in a pile of sweat-soaked bedsheets. Her body was little more than a skeleton, a collection of bones laying like disorganized tent poles beneath the bedclothes. Her eyes were distant, but intense, focused on the ceiling so tightly I found myself trying to see what she saw. He ruins all of them, the woman said. Cook it. All ruined. Clear bits of tape peppered her throat, covering shunts and tubes and wires that disappeared beneath her pale, papery skin. Ruined them. I held my breath. The cords of air had returned, not quickly, no, but very much there and as hard and as cold as iron. They bound me. They moved me. I felt them encircling my throat like a steel collar. Who? I asked. The woman's hand was shaking now, then her entire arm. She clenched a tiny blanket, like a little red baby's blanket, in her fist. It beat against her chest. Her eyes were blank and blind and roomy, her mouth a limp hole full of useless teeth. She hissed in pain. You know, she said. She didn't look at me. Say it, you bitch. You know. I have no idea. I stuttered. I coughed into my hand, hard. I tried to talk again and could only cough. There were low voices in the room beside me, beside us, where I could hear men discussing some clinical case. 
I couldn't understand most of it, but the results were dire. Distressing, is what he said. The door was shut, but I could see the shapes of shadows on the walls. Crooked, the woman hissed. Long and crooked. The woman's hips bucked upward and she began grinding her teeth. Then the old woman was bent in a perfect arch, her ankles free of the blanket, scrunching up the fitted bedsheets as they moved closer and closer to her neck. I screamed for help. Nobody came. I turned to the door where I had heard the men talking and pushed it open, yelling into the room. Can't you hear this out here? I shouted, my voice dying in my throat when I saw them. They were dressed in identical brown suits, a dozen gold buttons marking the center of their rotund bellies. Their faces were globs of brown putty, speckled with a scramble of eyes and teeth and tongues. My mouth rose in a scream that would not come, the air catching in my throat as my heart jumped into overdrive. I stumbled backward as they rose from their chairs and floated toward me. I shut the door and heard them banging on the other side, laughing at me and saying garbled wet words. The old woman drowned them out with her screaming. She had split like an egg at the waist and was dripping what looked like black tar into a growing pool on the bed. Her body had twisted fully into a circle so that her head and shoulders were now stretching past her ankles. Her eyes were wide and blind, teeth grinding so hard I could see little chips of her incisors cracking off in puffs of dust. I screamed then, straining in vain against the thick tendrils of air that had fettered me in place. There was a terrible crunch as the woman tore in half, exposing a splintered, blackened chunk of spinal cord that sputtered more foulness onto the bed. Her legs collapsed into the pile and began smoking. The stuff was burning through the bed now. I screamed then, straining in vain against the thick tendrils of air that had fettered me in place. There was a terrible crunch as the woman tore in half, exposing a splintered, blackened chunk of spinal cord that had sputtered more foulness onto the bed. Her legs collapsed into the pile and began smoking. The stuff was burning through the bed now creating a hole that dropped down, 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 down beneath the floor and beneath everything, into a place beyond this dream of a hospital. And God, how I hoped it was a dream. Then I felt them opening the door behind me. The old woman's torso twisted off the bed and swiped its fingers at me, slashing the air just over my arm with its silvery fishhook fingernails. Her face was split wide open, boiling away to a skull and two great yellow eyes blind as ever, glowing like the sun, eyes that shone on me, that blinded me. Hands grabbed me, pushing me down now, chuckling to themselves so they had no mouths to do so. Thick, silvery fish hooks pushed from the ends of their gloves to bury themselves in my skin. They were all a part of me, dug in deep and dragging me to that smoking hole the old woman's corpse had left. They pushed me down into the heat of that infinite, timeless dark, and I could feel the steady roll and pop of my own face melting off the bone. (laughs) 
Hey there, Westsiders. Enjoying the program? Then hop on Twitter, Reddit, or your podcast app and let everybody know how great the Westside Fairy Tales is. Taking a few seconds to rate us, review us, or share our latest episode and your thoughts on it helps get fresh ears on our stories and lets us rise up from the dark and sweltering pits of the sub-top 100 rankings. I know you folks appreciate a good summoning, so why not bring this eldritch and unseen thing to the unwedding masses? Utter our black name before your friends, family, and co-workers, and then tag us so we can retweet or share it. We're at WS Fairy Tales on Twitter and Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. Click link tree in the episode description for a comprehensive list of our social media connections. You can also send us an email at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. If your inner circle of living people are too undeserving of the Westside Fairy Tales, you can join our little cult, the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club, on Facebook. We talk about the episodes, books we've been reading, horror news, and all sorts of stuff, so pop on by. Thanks again for listening to the West Side Fairy Tales, and don't forget to give us a review on your favorite podcasting app after this episode. Now, back to our program, already in progress. Jesus, babe, are you okay? Darcy said dropping her tuna salad and cleaning a lump of the stuff off her thumb with her mouth. I wasn't breathing. She rushed around her desk to me. My God, Ash! Ash! You aren't breathing, babe! My body was resting in that sparkling infinity between consciousness and unconsciousness. The brain has turned all the feeling off, but the lights are still on. Darcy pressed her lips to mine and blew air directly into my lungs without hesitation. The sudden rush of fresh oxygen burned away the fog of whatever I'd been witnessing. In my mind, I saw a great purple sheet being cleansed of its dye with a bottle of bleach. Darcy backed away from me and kissed me on the forehead, but remained close enough to take a long look into both of my eyes. Then she sat back down in her chair as though nothing had happened. What am I doing here? I asked, looking around her office. It was one of the temporary ones in the general practice ward on the seventh floor. I'd been there a dozen times for different things over the past five years. Literally nothing should have put me off about it, but something did. Like there was a layer of dirt on everything I couldn't see or touch, but I could feel in a different way. It made me think of a tall doctor with filthy glasses. I was going to ask you that, Darcy said. Her expression was confused now, though interested. The sandwich was quickly disappearing. You just said hi to me and sat down a minute ago. Next thing I know, you're not breathing and you look like a ghost. She set the sandwich down. Are you having a panic attack? Then, in a softer voice, Are you seeing anything that's not there? I opened my mouth to say something. I don't know but I sobbed instead and nodded my head. It's been really bad today, Darce, I said. She scooted her chair closer to mine and took my hand in hers, still casually munching on the tuna salad while I told her about the girl in our house 
the moment with the painting, and then getting lost in her hospital. She listened to everything closely, clinically, nodding along with sympathy when she needed to. It wasn't anything she hadn't heard before. I'd had bad spots since we'd been together on more than a dozen occasions, and she'd seen me through all of them. It might sound crazy to you, this casually admitting visions and hallucinations and nightmares, if you've never been in love with the casually insane. But it's not so rare as you might think, though even I'd thought it'd be impossible before we met in my mid-twenties. Sick people aren't dead until they die, and it's possible to love broken things. It might be the best part of being human, in fact. Our ability to love the broken and the damned. Darcy saw me as the former, merely broken, like any of the people who came to her with a hurt leg or a missing finger or shy a bit of thyroxine in their bloodstream. Our relationship was a dance between my need to be independent and my need to be treated, and she led perfectly, and that's why I fell in love with her. Do we need to check you in for a bit? She asked, meaning did I need to go to a psych ward for a little psycho-spiritual R&R. She said it in a reassuring way, though the thought of an inpatient stay hardly set me at ease. Of all the places I'd ever been interned as an official crazy person, only the Taff in Weston was reliably great. I'd done a few days or weeks here and there all across this great nation of ours, and I can tell you firsthand, it's a fucking dice roll the sort of care you'll get when you check in somewhere, even if you've been there before. No, I said, and I meant it. I could feel it. And I'm not the sort of crazy where it's in my best interest not to trust my feelings. In fact, I'm not sure, as you might be, whether I'm actually crazy or not. I certainly felt that way, especially then. Now, even, as I sit in this glowing room of black windows and type on this ancient and clattering typewriter, its arms going like scissors and oil with each letter. But then, despite all I had seen, I didn't feel crazy. I felt trapped. As though the twists of air had somehow bound up the entire western edge of the state and were now sliding like stiff, cold breezes along I-70 and through the national park toward me. I felt like a fish seeing the first invisible currents dancing ahead of the net as it approached, and thinking of that made me run my fingers along my scars. I think I need to go back. I almost said, where I belong. Instead I paused, swallowed, and said, back to, back where I used to live. Darcy raised an eyebrow. You want to live in fucking West Virginia again? She asked, almost laughing. When she saw how serious I was, her expression softened, faded. Why? I... My words failed me. I can't articulate the feeling much now, sitting up here in the spaces between the stars, and I couldn't even get close then. With Darcy sitting there in front of me, and the electric waterfall of the vision still catching in the holes inside my skull, draining down into my guts via the spine. I think if I did, then maybe I could write again. I said softly. She smiled at me and continued the conversation, going over the technicalities and difficulties while I nodded along. 
I looked out the window, where I thought I saw a speck of something black floating across the sun. But of course, who sees things like that? The consensus by the end of Darcy's lunch break was that leaving Colorado for West Virginia wasn't the right move for us. But leave Colorado we did, just a few months later. And come fall, I was writing again. This season, the West Side Fairy Tales takes you to Gun Cotton, West Virginia, a small, eclectic mountain town where the ever-thickening mists hold untold and horrifying secrets. We join Ash Littletree, now 30 years past the events of our tale, The Umbrella Man, as she journeys back to her home state to escape the funk that has overtaken her in middle age. Once back in West Virginia, however, She'll find the past she thought she'd left behind is still half alive and waiting for her. And this time, she might not escape. The focus of the West Side Fairy Tales has always been, and remains, on bringing you striking, original, and above all else, well-written horror stories. This season, we're upping the ante by not just bringing you the narration you've come to love, but by using the audio format to its utmost to put you into the world of the West Side fairy tales through fully textured soundscapes and music, we are fully committed to bringing you a horror experience unlike anything you've heard before. For the entirety of this season, the podcast will be released bi-weekly on the first and third Fridays of every month, October through July. The trade-off for this new format is that there are no longer recommendations at the beginning of the episode, in order to let the story flow more organically. That said, there still will be new recommendations in the monthly Horror and Lit Club episodes, which are being moved to the fourth Friday of the month. I hope you'll join us in learning more about Gun Cotton, Ash's unsettling future, and more in this, Season 5 of the West Side Fairy Tales, Scars in Time. Next episode, Ash wraps up the last threads of her life in Colorado as she and Darcy prepare to move to Gun Cotton, West Virginia. However, Ash's delusions, her visions, continue to afflict her day and night. She soldiers on, as always, but finds it harder and harder to say the nightmares she's seeing aren't real when they're walking around in the daytime. Thank you for tuning in to Scars in Time the fifth season of the West Side Fairy Tales. I hope you'll join us in two weeks for Chapter 2, The Fire. And, until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, 
and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson... A young crime reporter from Charleston is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.